Hello and welcome back to the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty. It's great to have you with us today. In today's episode, we're going to do an author review. We're going to do this from time to time on the program where I will take a particular author that I like, that I've learned from, and I'll introduce him to you. I'll tell you about the books that he's written, his good books and his bad books, if he's written some bad books. Give you a little bit of background information about him so you know kind of what's on the table when you pick him up and you start reading him, if there's something you need to be aware of, maybe look out for. And today, as our first author highlight, I've chosen to review O. Palmer Robertson. Now, some of you may be familiar with Robertson's works. Uh, That may be a name that means nothing to you. Let me give you a little bit of background on him. I was introduced to him by Brother Ron Corder several years ago because he wrote a book called The Final Word. We're going to review that book briefly later on. When I read the final word, that was the first time I'd read anything by Robertson. So I was kind of unfamiliar with him up to that point, but this was a good introduction to him. And it piqued my interest in his writings, and I followed up and read a couple of his other books, and there's some good mixed with some bad. Give you a little bit of background on him. He's from a Reformed background. That is, I believe he's a Presbyterian. So with that in mind, he has a high view of Scripture, which is a must in my reading categories. In other words, he believes in the full inspiration of Scripture, believes it was written by God and that it's fully inspired. Um, On the other side, he is a Presbyterian or a Reformed writer, and so he is uh, Calvinistic in some of his thoughts. Now, that doesn't come out in all of his writings, and we'll talk about that today, but that is something to kind of be aware of. He was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary for quite a while, and um, as such, he has some Calvinism, and he also has some covenant theology in him. We'll talk more about that as well. So I've classified his books into three categories. i got the great category, the good ones, and then the bad category. And in his great category of the ones that I've read so far, I would put the final word as not only a great book, but a must-read. We'll talk more about that momentarily. And then a second one is God's People in the Wilderness. I believe that's also a must-read, especially if you're going to be doing a study in the book of Hebrews. In the good category... You have a few books. Um, One is The Israel of God. He's combating dispensational premillennialism there and showing that uh, the Israel of God is spiritual Israel in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's combating the concept of replacement theology, that God had Israel chosen for salvation, then he had to switch that to a plan for the church. Uh, Robertson is rejecting that concept and just teaching that uh, spiritual Israel, Old and New Testament, has always been God's plan, and that physical Israel was never chosen for salvation. Another book that he wrote that's good is uh, Christ of the Prophets, where he goes back and deals with Messianic prophecy. That's a pretty good book. He wrote a book called The Christ of Wisdom, and the title of that is a little bit deceptive because when you read that title, you would think, how does Jesus embody wisdom? And it's not really about that. It's more a discussion of wisdom literature in general. And then he wrote another book, kind of an odd book. It's called The Genesis of Sex. Uh, sexual relationships in the first book of the Bible. I think there's some benefit to it, though, more of a, a niche category. Now, in the category of bad books that he wrote, in my opinion, he wrote a book called Christ of the Covenants. 
And the reason I say this is a bad book is because it's written to espouse covenant theology. Now, having said that, he does a very good job espousing covenant theology. And if I were going to have a discussion with a covenant theologian and I wanted to get prepared for what their position is, this is a book that I would pick up and read because he does a good job presenting his position. That's what makes it a dangerous book and why I I don't recommend it to people. Uh, Covenant theology is the concept that uh, each of the covenants basically have been built upon each other, and thus uh, we are still under a similar covenant to what was given at Sinai, rather than the old covenant being replaced with the new covenant. That's called new covenant theology is how Reformed people refer to it. It's just what Church of Christ people have believed all along. But anyway, uh, we are not covenant theologians. We're also not dispensationalists. And covenant theologians constantly interact with dispensationalists. And so when they're interacting with dispensationalists, they're the good guys, but they're not great guys because they're still wrong in their covenant theology position. Uh, Another book that he wrote was called The Justification Controversy, and while he was on the board at Westminster Theological Seminary, a professor there, they were having a a problem there about justification by faith alone, and he is a strong advocate of salvation by faith only and wrote about that controversy. It's it's interesting from a historical perspective, but he takes the wrong position on that, and so uh, I definitely don't recommend that book to people. Um, Again, He is a full inspiration of the Bible guy, and he is also a cessationist. And we'll talk more about that when we're talking about his book, The Final Word. But he is a covenant theologian, and he's a Calvinist. So you need to keep that in mind whenever you're reading it and kind of read his books through those filters. Okay, let's talk about the two books that I recommend that I believe are not only good books or great books, but they're must-reads. The first one is The Final Word. And this is a, a book that's discussing the nature of prophecy in the Bible and how tongues played into that. So this would be a great book if you're dealing with a a oneness Pentecostal person or a Pentecostal person in general who believes in continuous revelation, who believes that we can still speak in tongues today. Uh, This is a great uh, book that examines all of the different ins and outs arguments on those related subjects and gives you some really good Bible exegesis on some critical and key passages that relate to that. One of the things that he does really well in this book is shows that there's there's a broader category to prophecy than what people most of all think. When they think of prophecy, they think of predicting the future. And prophecy is more about foretelling than it is foretelling. Foretelling the future is a subcategory of foretelling. And whenever uh, prophets of the Bible reveal God's will, will, they were foretelling what God wanted them to know. Sometimes that included foretelling of future events, but most of the time it just talked about revealing God's will to mankind. He's really good at pointing out those two distinctions and showing how prophecy always originates with God. It does not originate with man. Man doesn't prompt prophetic utterances out of God, but God reveals things to the prophet. Uh, There were There were several purposes of tongues that he points out. First of all, he points out tongues were revelational in nature. In other words, when a man spoke with a tongue, he was revealing a message from God in that tongue. He points out that tongues in the Bible were foreign languages, so this revelation was being expressed in a foreign language. And when I say foreign language, it was foreign to the person who was uttering it. Let me illustrate that. I'm an American. I grew up speaking English. I moved to Russia for several years, and I I learned a little bit of Russian while I was there. 
but I definitely cannot speak Russian fluently. Russian was foreign to me. Uh, in the early church times, tongues included the ability to speak in a foreign language that you've never studied before and to speak in it fluently. And uh, Robertson does a really good job of pointing out the nature and the definition of what tongues were. He points out that tongues were for public consumption. Okay, this wasn't something that was beneficial to me on a private basis, but were for the sake of the public assembly, usually the assembly of the church. And they were signs indicating that a radical change had occurred in redemption history. That's why on the day of Pentecost there's an outburst of tongues, because this radical change, this radical forward movement in redemption history has occurred. So the question becomes, are tongues in particular, and is revelation, continuous revelation, for the church today. I want to read you a couple quotes from his book that I think are very helpful. One comes from page 52. He says, The end goal of revelation is not the perpetual experience of revelation itself. Revelation, instead, is a means to an end. In other words, revelation wasn't meant to keep on continuing and happening forever. It was temporary, leading you to an end goal. On page 53, he states, the sooner a piecemeal process of revelation has been completed, the quicker men can come to know personally and intimately the God who loves sinners in all his fullness as the Redeemer of men. The, the quicker that we can have the completed word given and get away from a revelation in piecemeal fashion type of mode, the better off we'll be. And that's an important point that's critical. We believe in the Church of Christ, revelation has ceased and we have the completed word, and that's a better situation to be in than having it piecemealed out. Revelation in the New Testament times was regulated by God, and it didn't happen all at once. It came in this piecemeal fashion, and Robertson does a really good job of pointing that out in his book. He also points out that there was a decline in revelation uh, throughout scriptures. There was a lot of Revelation that occurs in the beginning of the preaching of the Christian gospel message, a uh, big outflow of miraculous use of tongues. But as you get further away from the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.38, the fewer and further between the revelations are occurring. And you can see this contrasted in the writings of Paul to young Timothy. In Paul's early writings, he's stressing miraculous abilities, such as in the church at Corinth. But whenever he gets to Timothy, he's stressing the need to study that which has already been delivered and to hold it fast to protect it for the sake of the saints. Uh, he does a really good job, and this is one of the great points of his book. He does a great job of defending cessationism and answering objections to it. Cessationism is the belief that miraculous knowledge or continuous revelation has ceased. That's the co concept of it has ceased or cessation has taken place. One of the things that he does really well in discussing cessationism is he expounds upon 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and the book of Acts really, really well. In fact, it's some of the best material I've ever found on 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I highly recommend the book if, if you bought it for no other reason than to read his section on 1 Corinthians 14, it's well worth the price of the book. As Robertson reaches the conclusion of his book, he points out four negative results for rejecting the biblical concept of revelation. As he's discussed, number one, you end up degrading the true nature of prophecy and the true gift of prophecy. 
You end up taking something that was special and important, and you've made it very common and insignificant. Number two, you end up minimalizing the role of Scripture. What we end up saying whenever we take a continuous revelation position is that we don't really need the Bible because whatever God wants me to have, he'll just give it to me directly. And so that creates both laziness and a contradiction of what Scripture reveals about itself. Number three, it makes uh, the decision-making a very difficult thing for people. They're kind of held captive because they keep waiting around Is God going to reveal his will to me? What does he want me to do in this type of situation? Has he laid this on my heart? And the fact is, God isn't going to continually reveal things to mankind. He has already revealed his general will to mankind in the word of God, and we're going to have to go to the Bible and study it and learn how to apply it correctly to our lives. It also stifles growth. Continuous revelation concept stifles stifles growth. We grow by reading and studying from God's Word. If we believe God is going to speak to us directly and reveal His will to me personally, then there's no reason for me to study God's Word. And when I get away from studying God's Word, I am not going to grow. And so these are some background areas where I think his book is very, very good. Kind of in the overall general section, the general assessment of the book, I'll point out the pros and cons of it. Um, There are a lot of really great pros. One of my favorite books, especially on this topic, it's brief. It's not a very long book. It's very clear. Uh, Robertson has great clarity when he writes. He's a really good writer. He interacts with the leading arguments against cessationism or the ceasing of miracles in Revelation. So you're going to find some helpful Uh, material there, both what's going to be argued from a continuous revelation standpoint and how to answer that from the Bible. He does a great job of showing that with miracles came a message, and if we're going to advocate for miracles, we're also going to have to continue to advocate for the continuation of revelation. And he presents, again, some of the best exegesis I've ever read on 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I want to share one more quote with you from page 83 of his book. He says, the established pattern and the explicit teaching of Scripture is that the clear proclamation of the truth rather than the working of wonders is the most effective method of spreading the gospel. I think people today want miracles because they think if we could work miracles, we could convince people to obey the gospel. And the fact is, the word of God is the power of God unto salvation. And we don't need miracles once the word has been fully and completely revealed as we have it today. One of the cons that he has in this book, and this is just very briefly mentioned, he doesn't dwell on this much, but he takes a position that you have to have a direct operation of the Holy Spirit to understand what you're reading. I feel like that's a little bit contradictory to his overall premise. I don't believe in a direct operation of the Holy Spirit as a means of salvation or for illumination of the scriptures as Calvinism teaches. If you have some questions about that, want to know more about that, get some material on that, write me at christianresearcher at gmail.com. I'd be happy to send along some information to you or discuss that further with you. But that is one of the small drawbacks from this book. Otherwise, really good read. Okay, I want to talk to you now, switching gears, I want to talk to you about his book, God's People in the Wilderness. I sat down and read this the other day because I've been doing some studying, some reading in the book of Hebrews. In fact, one of my Monday night reading groups that I've, I've set up has been discussing the book of Hebrews, and we've just completed William Lane's book. 
And so I, I saw this book on my shelf and I picked it up and I didn't realize that I had already read about half of this book a couple years ago. When I read a book, I go through and I highlight and I mark things that I like and I also things where I disagree. And half of this book was already marked up and I have no memory of having read this. But anyway, I'm glad I found it on my shelf and I'm glad I sat down and read it, read it in its entirety because it has some really, really good qualities about it. The main point that's being stressed in this book is it's showing a large scale, a macro version of typology. He's showing that as Israel exited Egypt, entered into the wilderness wandering period, and hoped to enter the promised land of rest, all of that was typically looking forward to where we are as Christ, as Christians in the church. We have left the bondage of sin, we are in the wilderness period currently, and we are awaiting our interest into the promised rest, the eternal rest of God. He points out that Hebrews is unique and that it doesn't speak of God's children as a body or a building, but it speaks of them as the wilderness wandering or pilgrim people. And I think that's a really important concept. If you'll keep this concept of the new exodus that the church is on in mind as you read Hebrews, the whole book takes on a different uh, scope, if you will, and you can recognize the continuity and the flow of the book as a whole. His first chapter alone in this book is worth the price of the book because he discusses the New Exodus theme in Scripture in general. He gives you this kind of big picture view of the New Exodus theme so that he can focus in or zoom in on the book of Hebrews in particular. He does some really good job. He does a great job highlighting the New Exodus theme in connection with John the Baptist and his wilderness ministry and his baptism. He talks a little bit about the concept of the new exodus and the temptation scenes and the transfiguration scenes of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew in particular. Wonderful reading sections there. He discusses the new exodus theme as Jesus sits down on the mountain and is God and the new Moses in delivering the Sermon on the Mount, which will be the new law and the covenant of the new kingdom of God. He discusses on a large scale the new Moses themes throughout the New Testament. This is fantastic reading material. If you've never done any reading material about the New Exodus theme throughout the New Testament, I would highly recommend you get uh, God's People in the Wilderness by O. Palmer Robertson and read this first chapter. It will whet your appetite for one of the major overarching themes in the New Testament. As he leaves the New Testament discussion in general, he begins talking about the New Exodus theme in Hebrews in particular. He points out that the concept of covenant is major in Hebrews as it was in the wilderness wanderings of, of Israel. He presents that Christians have been brought into a covenant relationship with Christ, and there are blessings and cursings that come with that covenant, just as there were blessings and cursings that came with the first covenant. He pointed out something interesting I've never learned or realized before. The term covenant is used 17 times in the book of Hebrews. In the rest of the New Testament combined, it's only used 16 times. And that stresses to you how important the concept of covenant is in reading the book and understanding the book of Hebrews. 
In chapter 3, he discusses the unity that exists amongst God's people because we have been unified through Christ, our elder brother, who has come and taken on the flesh so that he can identify in every way such as we and be qualified to become our high priest as he serves amongst his people who wander through the wilderness together. In chapter 4, he discusses the already but not yet nature of the kingdom. We are the people of God. We have already left the world of sin and bondage, and we are now in the wilderness, but we have not yet arrived at the consummation of the kingdom, which will occur when Jesus returns and we enter into the promised land. This is very much like the theme of Israel in the wilderness at Sinai. In chapter 5, he discusses the concepts that God's people are a worshiping community and that God dwells in the midst of his people like he dwelt in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. We have direct access to God, thanks be through Jesus Christ now, and we offer to God continually our spiritual sacrifices, the fruit of our lips. Now, in chapter 5, he has a really interesting section where he discusses the concepts of baptism and the Lord's Supper in connection with the book of Hebrews, and he shows that both of these are addressed implicitly in the book, and the implications of it are extremely interesting. And I won't say anything more than that. I would encourage you to pick up the book and read it. In chapter 5, he also has some of the best material that I've read on the concept of forsaking the assembly of the church. In chapter 6, he talks about how The children of God in the wilderness have to fix their eyes on the promised rest if we are to reach the goal of rest. And he shows, this is really critical, he shows in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 that Hebrews 11 1 is an explanation of what faith does and is not per se a definition of what faith is. I remember Brother Ron Quarter making that point several years ago, and it's really stuck with me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, is an explanation of what faith does. And again, I would recommend getting the book just to read uh, that portion. Uh, in chapter 7, he shows how to preach the book of Hebrews. By drawing seven uh, admonitions from it, he shows that the book of Hebrews is set up very much like a sermon, and then how to preach the sermon to your people. All in all, I think this is just a a phenomenal book on the book of Hebrews. Talk about pros and cons here quickly as we close. First of all, it is a very enjoyable read. It's, It's a fun read. He is easy to read. He's very clear, and he provides you with a big picture that really helps out in the book of Hebrews. He stresses the typological parallels, and he uses them to build an overarching theme that unifies the whole book of Hebrews so you have a a better continuity of thought throughout the whole book. One of the things that I'm very surprised, especially since he's coming from a Reformed Calvinist type of a background, He seems to be advocating for free will, and he never, as in never that I could find, advocates a once saved, always saved type of situation. In fact, he warns strongly that Christians have to be aware that uh, it is possible to fall, to fall to temptation, and we must be aware of that and overcome that, or else we will fall like Israel fell in the wilderness. And that's, that's a great theme. If we can understand the connection between Hebrews and the first Exodus, we'll realize that what Israel did and was capable of doing, we're in that same boat. My favorite part of the whole book was his material on forsaking the assembly. 
and the what that is teaching, what that's advocating by our actions, that is a powerful section of reading, and I would strongly encourage you to get that and read it. It's some reading, it's some material that needs to be taken in, consumed by our people, and preached from our pulpits. The weaknesses or the cons of the book, there's two. On page 126, he has a brief, like a half a page discussion of works and faith, and he would say that we are in a situation of legalism. I, I reject that totally. The concept of the necessity of obedience uh, does not negate from the salvation that comes by grace. We are all saved by grace, but God still requires us to o- obey him and follow him faithfully. We can't claim that we've saved ourselves, but that doesn't mean that we're free to disobey God. Uh, the other weakness of his book is that in Hebrews chapter 6, when he's talking about the first principles of the oracles of God, he takes a position that those first principles are Christian concepts or Christian doctrines. Uh, he does that rather reservedly or hesitantly. He doesn't come down on it real hard or strong. I think that he's wrong on that position. I think Brother uh, James McKnight in his commentary on the epistles of Paul and also William Lang in his two-volume set on Hebrews in the Word Biblical Commentary set, they do a much better job of showing that the first principal things being discussed at the end of chapter 5 and in Hebrews 6 are actually Old Testament concepts that are foundational. And why would you why would you abandon the reality that is in Christ and return back to a foundational type of worship system that was temporary from its very get-go? And so those are a couple of things to keep in mind and some pros and cons with the book. Both these books, both The Final Word and God's People in the Wilderness are wonderful reads. If you'd like to pick up a copy, you can go to christianresearcher.com and you will find both books in our bookstore. Again, that is christianresearcher.com and you can find both The Final Word by O. Palmer Robertson and God's People in the Wilderness there as well. We thank you for joining us this week. This episode went a little bit longer than usual, but we hope the material that we have given you is easily digestible, is helpful in uh, sharing with you a couple of books, making you aware of a good author, uh, making you aware of his good books, and also giving you some keys to help you avoid some of his pitfalls, his downfalls. We hope that you'll join us again next week as we'll have another episode for you. Thank you for following along. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast at iTunes and the iTunes and the other places where it's posted. Uh, check us out for weekly updates and be sure to share the podcast with others so that others can join in in our journey. Thanks and have a great week. Better is our sacrifice. He paid the, he paid the price, the price. He paid it all upon the cross. No longer bound by sin or with the eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.